Welcome to another episode of the AlbumReview.net podcast. I'm Greg Potters. Thanks to all you loyal listeners out there for your interaction and your feedback. Your feedback is much appreciated and it helps me to always improve. On today's episode, Clementine Moss joins me again, but this time for an in-depth, descriptive, and emotional review of George Harrison's 1970 debut album, all things must pass. This is part one of a two-part review. I just had to break it into two parts. <laughs> it was a really long conversation. Clem was a recent guest on episode number 51 of the podcast. She is the founding member and the drummer for the West Coast-based Led Zeppelin powerhouse tribute project, Zepparella. Clem is also a spiritual counselor and an author. She recently published a book, From Bonham to Buddha and Back. And you can check this out and pick up a copy of your own at either clementinemoss.com or clemthegreat.com. So whether you're a Beatles fan or not, all things must pass. It really changed my perception of not only George Harrison, but of music. So sit back. Or keep up that good pace if you're doing some exercise or washing the dishes right now. And enjoy part one of this two-part review of George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. things with you how's the tour i know you just recently you did nashville a couple yeah. places in nashville how how's uh, the tour been going yeah yeah it was good it was yeah we had a, a busy we had a couple weekends where we were kind of flying around and then i had a week off and then we went out to nashville and i stayed in nashville during that week because my my dear friend that I write songs with, Justin, he lives in Nashville. And so I hadn't seen his new house I think you or were, anything. I think you mentioned that, that you had a really close friend there that kind of takes yeah. you around and yeah, gives yeah. you the new stuff. Cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And we had a day off in Nashville and we got to go get tours of uh, Third Man Records oh, and, nice. uh, and the Gibson factory and the Gibson. Very recording. cool. Yeah. How was so, that? It was really cool. Gretchen, my guitarist and my bass player went to the factory and okay. got to see them like actually assembling the guitars. Wow. And then I met them up at what they call the Gibson Garage, which is kind of their retail 
area. The business offices are upstairs and we went up to the CEO's office and he has uh wow. He has, uh, I know, it was amazing. He, I guess he was the one who was taking them all around the place to the factory. And then we met them back and we went up to his office and we're hanging out and he has Mary Ford's guitar, which is actually back, basically the guitar that the Les Paul was created off of, right? Oh my so, God. Uh, and Gretchen sat and played it. I swear, I, like, I, got, wow. <laughs> I got really, really teary, like when she was playing it, because it was like, I just, I felt this, like, you know, I just felt time, you know? Yeah. Like from, you know, this badass woman, you know, in the 30s, 40s, uh, 50s, you know, and then. Um, yeah. And you're in the presence of that yeah. tangible thing. I mean, I couldn't, if I was in the presence of that guitar, I would have the same. Just kind it was of like, emo- it was kind of emotional. <laughs> yeah, yeah sure. it was kind of emotional. Yeah. And then Gretchen was just playing this beautiful, like, oh. sound, like playing. Did so the guitar sound? I mean, despite it its sounded so history, good. it did it no, really. No, no, oh, it sounded man. so good. You know, I I didn't know the story of it, but I guess some her nephew or something, Mary Ford's nephew, sold it on eBay for like seven thousand dollars or wow. something, and then Gibson. Surprise! That's it. Yeah. And then Gibson was like, hey, wait a minute. Like, we need that. (laughs) (laughs) Give that over here. Um, Very cool. And kind of saved it. Yeah. So it was, it was a really special, special. Awesome. Yeah. They had a rush pinball machine. Oh, very nice. (laughs) I was thinking of that. So cool. Yes. Very up my alley. Yes, for sure. (laughs) That is awesome. Well, I've been renting out this studio. I have the one we did the last pod, you and I was in my house, but this one is not too far down the street. So I've been using this a little bit over the last Mm. couple of weeks to record episodes. So Mm. it's nice. Well, yeah, I was doing some doing some recap some some little bit of homework and this morning got up and all I've been doing all day besides work is just been listening to the album again when I was listening to the the record and just like kind of reading about it and and making notes I I was like you know Greg is so good at like talking about the you know the specifics of the musicality i'm the kind of person who never really paid attention to who played on what or you know what i mean like it's not my brain <laughs> yeah. but i do like talking about like just like the meaning of things, the meaning of things and since we had such a like kind of spiritual connection i thought that this would be this album totally. would be a good opportunity to kind of delve into some some of the that stuff so. yeah yeah so <clears throat> after the calamitous divorce of the beatles lead guitarist George Harrison finally had an opportunity to release a compilation of songs that he'd been writing and presenting to the band for several years. A man who many thought, including other members of the Beatles, was an undervalued talent. Harrison recorded his album, All Things Must Pass, his first solo album with producer Phil Spector at Abbey Road Studios. Released on September 27, 1970, it ended up as a triple album. And so consumers were gifted with three black vinyl records that slid swiftly in and out of the album jacket. Just picture it. (laughs) Aside from the Woodstock concert LP, it was considered the very first triple studio album ever released, which I found really cool. Much of this album was recorded live with the original studio version also containing a bonus vinyl disc, including Apple Jams, with songs such as 
it's Johnny's birthday, plug me in and out of the blue. And I'm going to get into a lot of these songs in a moment, but again, wanted to introduce my friend and guest, Clementine Moss. Clem, how's it going? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I bought this album because they just came out with the 50 year anniversary. Um, I thought I had it in here with me, but, um, and uh, so it seemed like kind of the perfect the perfect thing to talk about since you and I both like are really interested in spiritual stuff and you know uh George is maybe one of the most vocal spiritual rock and rollers of the 70s right so. I was really delighted when I you know dug deeper into the Beatles when I really got into my phase decades ago to learn a lot more about George and then we were you know we were just talking about the 2011 documentary living in a material world and I was practically brought to tears when I saw that just because I mean not only just the way that George ended up passing away to the lung cancer but just also how it was funny like I didn't want to I didn't in any way nor did I want to hate Paul and John but I had feelings sometimes of like, especially when I saw that Let It Be or not, was it Let It Be? No, I'm sorry. It was the um, Get Back documentary yeah. that was on Disney Plus uh, right. a couple of Thanksgivings ago. I remember that whole weekend. I just, I just I watched did that. I did that too. I did that too. <laughs> it was like seven hours. And I just oh, thought, yeah, it you was know, so great. Oh my gosh. And, but I remember seeing that and thinking like, why don't they give him more, you know, more? And they did, but they also, I mean, Paul was just such a machine when it came to like getting things going. And it seemed like when they went into the studio, Paul was like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Whereas, and Ringo was, I heard an interview with Ringo a couple of months ago where he was like, during that session, I was just there. And whenever they would start jamming and throwing something together, I would just put a drum beat on it. So I was kind of always ready. Whereas they, the rest of the guys were, like, yeah, I'm not feeling it right now. I want to go have a cup of tea or I'm not feeling it right now. I want to go, you know, go, go take a walk outside or something like that. But, but with yeah. George, yeah, I mean, he just, he, there was so much music inside him and, he, you know, most, if not all the songs that were George songs that were put on different Beatles records, I think were all classics, but God, when he had the opportunity to put out a solo record, I, I just, I was like, man, like, what would it have been like? And then it dawned on me, these aren't just people fanboying out or fangirling out or fanning out. It, this was really the biggest super group when you, when you put it all together. And I found it interesting that out of all, I think the first, the first of the three solo albums, the first one that was done by Paul, first that was done by John, and then this one, this was the most successful um, uh-huh. from a, you know, from a, a sales standpoint you might have owned this like i said i i it wasn't until 2002 that i was turned on to this record and so i feel like a really late bloomer do you remember the first time around the first time that you heard it um i don't think so but i'm sure that my father had it because you know my father was a really big rock and roll lover loved the beatles and the stones so he had it so this record was around a lot. I I don't remember it being in the same kind of rotation as some of the other records. Uh, and so listening to it through, you know, for 
when I uh, bought the 50 year anniversary, it was kind of some of the songs were surprised, like, oh, like I didn't even really realize that that was like whatever I was listening to. I think it was probably those end songs that you're talking about, the jam ones. Yeah. I don't really remember listening to those that much. I think I was captivated by the by the lyrics a lot. Sure. Um, and then uh, when you're talking about the documentary of the Beatles, you know, having been in bands for the last 30 something years, right. I was just like, I could feel what everybody was. Go I felt like I had been each of those people, totally. you know, I, because, yeah. you know, in bands, you know, when they fracture, and I'm not talking about my current band because my, you know, Zeparella as it I know is, is lovely, but you know, long ago, just being in bands where, you know, like, um, there's, there's factions, right? And I was watching John and Paul and they all, they just had that, that electric yeah. energy between them. Yeah. And it feels like, of course, George had to be on the outside of that, you know, totally. and you could see it. You could just you, see it. You could see it. And yeah. I remember when Troy's like, I'm out of here. And then John and Paul are like, we got to go get him. And then we they all go to his house. You know, I, I was like, oh, my God, I feel like I have been in that yeah. situation, you yeah. know. So yeah. um, that's what I really loved is just these are this is just a band. Right. These are just people who are in a creative relationship and all of the little like you never really understand all of the tiny little slights and injuries that people who are in creative situations kind of take on. So yeah, um, I, I always wonder this. Yeah. Reading about this and George just feeling free, you know, and totally. I feel a lot of freedom in the South. For him. Absolutely. There, Cause it's, it's kind of all over the place. Right. And he has a lot of guest stars on the album, uh, Eric Clapton, which I, I, you know, we, we all know of, he plays guitar and he sings on a bunch of different songs that I, I was looking back the song. I remember Jeep. after Clapton's dog Clapton, I saw that. Um, for for those listening to this that don't know Clapton and George were extremely good friends so much so that when and Clem keep me honest here but I'm pretty sure I have this story right when <laughs> when Clapton fell in love with Patty George's wife he kind of went to George and was like I've got a problem I'm in love with Patty and George confronted Patty and Patty was like, I've got a problem too. I'm in love with Eric. And instead of being like, screw you guys, he was like, well, I support if you two are in love. You know, I'm sure it wasn't an easy overnight thing. George had to swallow it and he probably went through some sadness and depression, but he didn't want to lose his relationship with both Eric and Patty. And so he was like, well, if you two are happy together and obviously if I remember correctly, you know, Clapton wrote Layla um, 
after, you know, right. because of his love of yeah. <laughs> But it's yeah. just like Well it you can I think you can hear in this album that he's kind of talking to breakup in some ways. Yeah. You know, in one way he's talking to the divine through the lover, right? Right. Um, in a lot of these songs. But there are songs I feel where he's you know that that feel like he's kind of trying to uh, to get back to some feeling or something it's kind of like his diary yeah or something like that so it is um yeah. i also found out that not only was you know clapton and several others but ginger baker i uh, saw that cream uh, yeah. those are in some of the blues jams that are on the, the i believe it's the third disc or the third lp mm -hmm. uh so for people who because I actually had enjoyed, I mean, I've listened to the first record several times, but I went back and really geeked out on the, the, the bluesy, jammy record this time around. And that's when I learned that Ginger Baker actually played on it. And just, it was a bunch of blues jams on there that, you know, if you like blues jams, you, you've got to listen to this. But, um, so this album was produced by Phil Spector. And for any of those out there who don't know Phil Spector, just Google him and watch the documentary. I think it was HBO that um, they did a documentary only a few years back on Phil Spector. What an interesting character. And I believe he's dead now, but yeah, interesting guy. But uh, a musical genius, many would say. He was known for creating the wall of sound. As I mentioned, he's quite mad uh, to, uh, to quote John Lennon. I think there was a story that John said one day, Phil, it was while they were recording one of Lennon's solo records, and Phil was mad at somebody else in the room, and he pulled out one of his guns and shot the ceiling. And the only person in the room that stood up was Lennon. And Lennon was like, Phil, if you do that crap again, I'm ending my relationship with you. This is free. Put the gun away. If that happened today, that guy'd be in jail. Like, you know, it's it's just I I love that story, and I just I love how I could picture Phil Spector like, "Sorry, John. Sorry about that." I, <laughs> and, I hate it. and then they just like continued because they all they both knew how special they each were from a musical standpoint. But anyway, Phil Spector, he's known for producing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of albums and if i'm if i'm correct i believe he's in the rock and roll hall of fame despite his his madness but the wall of sound the, the approach was this was really the the nucleus of the wall of sound specter recorded the backing tracks live with tracks ranging from several guitars two to three drummers at one point and more than one keyboard player so instead of just recording a track and then bouncing it and putting it on top of another one, he just had several drummers going at the same time and several guitar players recording at the same time. So when you think about it, I mean, I, to each to each their own. And some may, you know, you have a lot more recording experience than, than I do, Clem. It's been a couple of years since I've recorded in the studio. But I think that when you think about this, it creates somewhat of a deeper, wider surround sound that at least at the time, 1970, when this came out, few producers were, were searching for or even doing. I read that the musicians were all set up in a circle with Harrison in the middle, in many, many cases, Clapton with him in the middle playing the guitars. And I think when you listen to this album, you can really hear that full sound mixed with the echo of multiple instruments. Did you ever record this way, Clem, in any of your... 
Um, I have tried to record, you know, I, I like recording as live as possible, you know, as many instruments live as possible because um, it just, you get the mojo, yeah. right? You, you know, if I go in and, and just record a, a drum track and then record a bass track and then record a guitar track on top of it, you know, it, it doesn't have that same magic of people standing people in a room totally agree yeah now that said like some of my favorite songs on this album are the cleaner sounding ones right, right. the more simple sounding ones. right i feel like george's songwriting his guitar playing and his voice like you know when when they're just simply there it's kind of magic you know? wow. so and some of the stuff on this album I can really feel that kind of 70s, like Tom Jones kind of like yeah. show tune kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, a little bit. And I feel like that might be because there was just so much going on. And there was, was a it, lot. It was kind of busy. Busy. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I yeah. would say a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting. There's one of my favorite tracks, Wawa, which I want to get to in a minute. As much as I love it, when I first heard it, I couldn't get over how I felt like Phil Spector just turned the treble all the way up yeah and the yeah. bass all the way down right and such a contrast from such a stark contrast from what you know what i'm used to today i mean even these headphones that i have now like they're like triple bass bows you know they're meant to kick in the the bass right. and yet specter's sound was was different so as i mentioned before when i was introduced to this album in 2002 a close friend of mine, he said, take the Beatles and Pink Floyd and put them in a blender and out comes all things must pass. So for people out there that haven't heard it, even if you admire the Beatles, even if you don't, just take a listen. It's important to understand, as Clem and I were talking about earlier, George Harrison's angst and his kind of growing disappointment with really not having as many songs as he wanted included in a lot of the Beatles records. But when you go back and listen to when my guitar gently weeps and my sweet lord and um, oh god, Clem, help me out on some other ones. Like they're just they're all isn't it a pity? Classics, isn't yeah, it a pity? I mean, yeah. um, you know favorites. the ones that wound up on Beatles records and and they are really oh, oh so, the ones that oh, yeah the ones that ended up on Beatles records. I I feel right. like they're they're all so while my guitar print. gently weeps. Guitar Gently Weeps is is one of my favorites, and you can just feel how different that is from you know Old Blood D. Oh, blah, right. da, and a lot of the other tracks, Rocky Raccoon on the White Album. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but uh, by 1970, so, you know, we were talking earlier about 1969 was when the Get Back sessions were recorded. And I believe they were preparing to release Let It Be, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And by 1970, George had had enough and basically he spent six months compiling a list of musicians uh for his first album including Ringo Starr uh Beatles drummer obviously uh Clapton as we mentioned I also noticed Klaus Vorman who Klaus has been on a lot of Beatles stuff and has played on a lot of different records throughout the 60s and 70s Peter Frampton I did not know until I uh, did some mm -hmm. deeper diving and then Phil Collins was also mm -hmm. a part of this. So mm -hmm. I was mentioning Wawa, one of my favorite tracks. And I think the song begins instantly with a riff that you can pick up on. 
quite different from George's Indian sitar sound that he cultivated through a bunch of the Beatles albums. But Wawa is a really fast rock song. And it's, it's interesting to mention that because for some reason, like I said, it seems like Phil Spector turned the treble all the way up and the bass all the way down. And I really felt like, despite the fact that it's one of my favorites, it kind of lacks body. Yeah. But regardless of that, I think the song still kicks ass. And I think the, the rhythm and the beat continue to, to come full circle. They stop, pick back up, and this addictive guitar riff that just puts you back into the body of the song. And again, like I said, during the, the now famous get back sessions that were in Twickenham, Twickenham, if I'm pronouncing mm-hmm. that right, in West London, Awa, I guess, was inspired by George's frustration during those sessions, specifically with Paul over the song choices and you can actually see in the documentary Clem where I think it was all things must pass amongst a couple other songs where George is kind of jamming out and they're sort of humoring him a little bit and then at one point Paul's like all right let's get back to work yeah George is like I thought we were like I thought that's what we were doing so but George writes wah wah you've given me a wah wah w-a-h w-a-h kind of like uh what I used to say to my brother when we were little kids and he would fall and start crying. I would go, wah, wah. You know, I was such a mean older brother. Um, and then he writes, wah, wah, you've given me a wah, wah, and I'm thinking of you and all the things we used to do. So apparently that was written in the inspiration of kind of directing that right at, um, uh, yeah. right at, right at Paul. But I don't know. What are you, was this a song that resonated with you or, or well, not so- yeah, I I really always loved it musically, but the words irritated me. <laughs> right? It, you know what I mean? But um, I do. when I was reading about this song for this podcast, I saw that Wawa is, uh, means headache. Right? Like he was intending it like headache, like you're giving me a headache. And actually, when I, oh, once I, I heard that, I it that. Kind, cool. yeah, it kind of made me understand it more you right. know like I, right. I i was hearing it kind of the way that you were hearing it like you're such a baby kind of thing but i when he, i heard like ah oh, you're you're just giving me a headache you that know? makes more sense because i was like yeah. you're giving me a wawa yeah. and i don't think i put two and two together though so say mm-hmm. hey that's why we have multiple people on the pod to do reviews so we can learn things from each other so <laughs> um yeah yeah. It, it, yeah go ahead sorry well and another thing too about this record which it always knocks me out about every Beatles album, every Lennon album, every McCartney album, is the bass. Like, how do they yeah. get the bass to sound like butter? Right. Like, how does it sound like no that? Kidding. And oh and God. even in this song where you're right, like the treble is kind of wonky in this song. I think that it's just, it's meant to be, I think it sounds different to us than it did at the time. I think at the time it probably sounded super rock, you know, yeah, rock and right. roll. They're trying to get that, like, you know, noisy guitar sound, I right. guess. But through all of it, that ba- the bass is just so... And that's Klaus, right? That's Kla- that's Klaus, yeah. 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 It's funny you mentioned that, because Klaus and Clapton loved the sound when Spectre played it for them, like the sound quality. I mean, they all love the song, but they loved the sound, and Harrison hated it. Uh-huh. Um, and apparently Klaus and, and Eric just spent a couple hours convincing George no, no no this is good this is good and finally George relented and said okay all right all right fine let's 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 do it like that so wow. um yeah interesting but but you're right you know you mentioned 
the lyrics. I, I think, you know, George's lyrics, not just on this song, but on all the, the songs, they, they just bleed into your ear. They're so heartfelt. And in reading more about George and seeing the Living in a Material World documentary, I learned that he really became a very spiritual man after the Beatles decided to stop touring. So that was 1966. And I believe it was August of 66 was their last mm -hmm. show. Uh, and George, he valued life experiences. His, his family and friends were especially important to him, so much so that he reacted unlike most any individual would. And like we talked about, his, his close friend Eric Clapton had told him he'd fallen for George's wife, Patty, who Clapton later wrote the song Layla about him. And, and Harrison's reaction was, well, let love take them where it was meant to go. I mean, I just, I, I don't know whether if I was George's friend, I don't know whether I would have been like, punch him in the face, George, or if I would have been like, you know, George, you are the most beautiful person for just being like, hey, you know, it, it, let love take its course. And I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know if, if, if this happened to me, <laughs> I don't know what kind of reaction I would. I would have. I guess it would take a little while to get over it. And I wouldn't expect my wife to be like, oh, I support you, you know, whatever. Um, I just recently finished the um, the autobiography of Jan Wenner from Rolling Stone, who I think there's a lot of differences of opinion out there. A lot of people kind of think he's a, a schmudge, but I um, I think he's interesting. Obviously, his biography was interesting, but he, you know, he approached his wife of 20, 25 or something like years after they got married and, you know, told her he was gay. Mm -hmm. And part of the book was just her coming to grips with that. And she spent years just really being angry. And then finally she said, you know what, I'll always love you and I'll always support you. And in 90% of the family pictures, you know, after Jan came out of the closet and actually started dating a man and marrying a man, the wife's in the picture as well, supporting them. So I just, I thought that was beautiful. You know, it's like her love went beyond, I'm sounding a little cheesy here, but it's the way I feel. I think it, she went beyond her ego, mm -hmm. and, you know, had a level of maturity to say, you know, I, I still love him as a human and I'm going to support what he does. And it seemed like that was hard for him. And I'm sure it was hard for for George Harrison to say, Hey, yeah, you know, follow your heart, go, go wherever you, you know, you want to go. I, but I just, I think this adds to George's uniqueness, Clem. Well, yeah. And, and it really, you know, so when you think about this album as being kind of his breakthrough, like moving away from his old life into this new identity of, you know, solo musician and spiritual person right because yeah. so in 66 he met ravi shankar right right At, and started getting in, interested in the sitar and then very quickly found hinduism and some of the tenets in hinduism is that you know every being is divine right everything is divine we're all like little pieces of the divine and everything is love, right? So for George to have been, for the past four years, been deeply opening to this belief that everything here is, in a way, an illusion, kind of bring, like masking this bigger truth, which is that everything ultimately is divine, everything is God. 
would he really be somebody who would punch somebody in the face? Because love <laughs> was, you know, it's like yeah. you really do kind of understand that. And he's George cool. Harrison. Like he's not, you know, he doesn't have a hard time getting dates, right? <laughs> That's a good point. That is a very, very good point. Yes. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, you got you to gotta think that like a lot of celebrities are probably like, yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm Paul McCartney or I'm George. Yeah. I think I'll be... I'll be okay. I'm kind of amazed that those guys, a lot of those old older um, rockers from England, actually were with their people for a really long time. I mean, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's kind of shocking. Like you don't really see that in celebrities these days, where they really stick have the stick to itness that a a long marriage really takes. You know? You're but absolutely right. Kind of did, and I think that was what was unique about those guys is they really were. You know, I have. When I was thinking about this album earlier, I was the way I felt about George when I saw the Living in a Material World documentary. I felt the same way that I did when I dug deep into the Beach Boys and learned more about Brian Wilson and mm -hmm. how, in many ways, he's still a little kid. Now, unfortunately, mm -hmm. George has passed and he's been gone now for 22 years, but Brian is still with us. And Brian is, he's just like this lost child out there and all he really wants to do is be with friends and listen to music and talk about you know how he feels and yeah. um and so i feel like i don't know I, I i feel like the beatles were less of that you know they had their moments of course but they were less of that you know celebrity yeah i'm really special and you're not whereas you know today you see a lot more of that and you can see it all over tv i mean hell there are tv shows of people that apparently were supposed to think they're celebrities and all they've really yeah you know, they were married to someone who was kind of a celebrity you know they were like they were married to somebody who knew someone who was on dancing with the stars and now yeah. all of a sudden they're on a show and we're supposed to stop and stare when they walk into a restaurant you know do you know who that is that goes back to the age-old um theory that i had it's like if you put just a watermelon on tv yeah, <laughs> just, you have a channel that runs twenty four seven with just a watermelon, and then one day that watermelon is being displayed behind a velvet rope at a museum. People are going to be like, "Wow, that's that's the watermelon." That's, the one. <laughs> that's a little cynical, now, Greg. <laughs> well, you know, on this album, you know, George writes to the fans, right? Yeah. And, I mean, I know yeah. we're we're probably going to get there down the road, but you know, he writes a. A, a love song, a little love ode to the, what are they called? The apple. Apple right? scruffs. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The the people who for years really love took care song. of, yeah, took care of the Beatles in a way, you know, and yeah. here's George who's separated from the band, but really appreciating, you know, all of the people, you know, writing, writing an ode to the people who really uh, were or with them the whole time. It's funny you mentioned Apple Scruffs. You know, some of the other, I think, must-hear classics on the album. I don't think we have time to get into every single solitary one because this would be like an eight-hour podcast, but jumping around a little bit, but the ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp, uh, Let It Roll. Mm -hmm. um, my three favorites, or, well, I mentioned Wawa, but Run of the Mill, I Live For You, and then, of course, the title track, All Things Must Pass. I think mm -hmm. these are truly exceptional, just beautiful songs, Clem. And mm -hmm. after experiencing 
you know, loss in my family, this album touches me more than it ever did when I first heard it 20 some years ago. And I guess yeah. maybe I was living under a rock. I don't know. But um, talking about run of the mill specifically, mm -hmm. I think the lyrics are outstanding. opens up with everyone has choice when to and not to raise their voices i remember this song clam every time i'm in a situation where my patience is wearing thin uh -huh. i'm reminded of george's words where he's you know really guided and helped me become a better person uh -huh. and he wrote yet another song inspired i think by his frustration with his bandmates yeah. in the beatles i don't know what do you what do you think about that yeah, I think so. I think that this is definitely a song that he's speaking to the friendship that they they connected with. I, I feel like there's there's hidden meanings in this song that I don't quite, you know, I think he's speaking directly to situations in this. Yeah. I'm Greg Potters with albumreview.net. Are you looking to start your own podcast? I can save you a ton of time and money by helping you launch, publish, and grow your podcast. So this includes things like finding the equipment, the software, and tips and tricks that are gonna be right for you and your budget. Also, if you're looking for things like editors, designers, or you just wanna find out what the best platform to use is, that's what I do. So you can find me at albumreview.net or message me directly at gpotters at albumreview.net. There's another track, I Live For You, which begins with Pete Drake's ear-catching pedal steel guitar note that really falls back into a sweet, smooth, full-sounding verse rhythm. All alone in this world am I Not a for this world have I Live 
Spectre's production and mixing here is magnificent. I don't know what happened on Wawa. Um, <laughs> each, each instrument is is really equal, including Harrison's vocals. And unlike Wawa, it sounds like George is yelling over louder, overpowering sounds. But still love it. Interestingly enough, "I Live for You" was not part of the original release. I learned um, oh, really? George. Yeah, George added it to the package during the 30th anniversary re-release of the album in 2001. And so that was the copy that I got. Uh. Um, And so I just assumed that that had been part of the original. But if you go back and look, and it's, I think it's hard to find. If you pull it up on some of the music platforms online now, I I think, you know, they all have I Live For You on there. But still, this song holds the album together as its sound, energy, it's love and swing really eases your soul with the pedal steel sound that's you know that's created by by pete drake um, that's really not on any other any other track um do you have any specific feelings about this this song i have all of my little lyrics here so i'm kind of looking to see what the lyrics of this one are i'm always really bad at it like switch so i might have to come back to it okay no worries yeah yeah Yes. I wanted to touch upon all things must pass. I, I, I made wanted to make sure that this episode does not complete without talking about the song because <laughs> yeah, we have to talk about this song now brings me pretty much to tears every time I hear it. So it's one of those yeah. songs. It's like the Seinfeld episode when um, Elaine is dating that guy and he hears um, Desperado <laughs> and he just stares <laughs> off into the, into the abyss. And Elaine's like, are you, are you with me? And that's, that's how I get when this song comes on. And then not to take away from this album, but when I heard, oh my gosh, the goosebumps are already forming. When I heard this version on a concert for George, which Paul and Ringo put together a lot of, along with a lot of other artists at the Royal Albert Hall, in 2002, it was done exactly one year to the day that he passed away, November 29th, 2002. Uh, when I hear Paul's version of All Things Must Pass, when he opens with, you know, sunrise doesn't last all morning, the cloudburst doesn't last all day. Sunrise doesn't last all morning. A cloud burst doesn't last on me Seems my love is up and has left you with no warning It isn't always gonna be
After all this, my love is up and must be leaving. It isn't always gonna be this great. All things must pass. All things must pass away. All things must pass. Not a lie. Face another day, now the darkness only lasts night time. brings me to tears to, to add insult to injury this was also the name of a colin hanks 2015 documentary about the birth the dominance and then the, the depressing demise of tower records oh um, you know i don't know about you but like i grew up with i'm sure you did too like i grew up yeah. with tower records that's what i went that's where i went yeah um, there was one right down the street from me here in san francisco when I moved here yeah i mean we had yeah. we had one in boston and we had one right outside the city and i used to tell my parents that I was going over to my friend's house to play basketball and we jumped on the subway we took it into Boston and we spent three hours at Tower Records um, and going to Tower Records in the 70s 80s and 90s was like going to an amusement park on it was yeah. pleasure overload uh, <laughs> I know in the last podcast Clem we talked about um, people who go to record stores and yes house over and I was your... like I like go down the road and like have margaritas at the Mexican place and then come back. <laughs> well, that know. was me. I know your husband's like that. That yeah, was yeah. that was me. Um, amoeba. That's what we were talking. About. Oh, amoeba. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So tower is probably the closest. Excuse me. Amoeba is probably the closest thing to tower. Yeah, that's but, right. Um, but yeah, I found it. You know, I, Colin Colin Hanks deliberately chose that song. All things must pass. Obviously, so. If anyone out there, Clem, including yourself, if you haven't had a chance to see that documentary, you definitely should. Yeah, check yeah, it out. I need to. George's, well, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say George's lyrics deal with the fleeting nature of human existence and the harsh reality that indeed all good things do come to an end. So, well, uh, you know, when we were kind of talking about. Uh, this doing like talking about this album and thinking that I'm not really you know 
even though I've been a musician for a long time, I'm not the kind of person who ever like really figured out who like all of the people who played on albums and stuff. And, you know, I'm not really specific in my music listening like that. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that I, I really love about this album is the idea that we're writing to the, you know, we're writing love songs to people, friendships and yeah. um, partners, but he's also writing to the divine, right? To his understanding of spirituality and of God. And in Hinduism and in Buddhism, I know that, you know, the idea that everything passes is actually the practice, right? Because, yeah. you know, we sit and, you know, I studied, you know, I've been meditating as a Vipassana meditator for 30 years or so. And, and right. the practice is to sit and observe sensations, observe what rises and falls, and realize that if you cannot react or watch your reaction and fall into that place that is able to observe your reactions to things, then you realize that, you know, if, if this time there's a pain in my shoulder and I don't react to it, I don't, you know, uh, move my shoulder or sit a different way, I just observe it and then move on. The next time I come to the shoulder, it's going to feel different hmm. or it might feel the same, right? I mean, this is the basic practice. And, and in doing this kind of non-reactive sitting, what happens is you end up opening this wider awareness of realizing that which always stays. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, in a sense, all things must pass. To me, it's not a, it's not a sorrowful thing. It's a joyful thing because I love this. all of these things that rise and fall, they, everything does change. I mean, the Clem who's talking to you now is a different Clem who's talking to you now because my molecules have changed. My, my blood has moved. Everything is yeah. constantly in change. And I really right. feel that if we can really embrace our idea that everything changes and that we are here to find that which never changes that that open awareness of that that uh that bigger vibration that we're all a part of um, i think it can be very comforting in times when you know we are met with deep grief and real trouble and I, I find it really feels like the people who suffer the most are those who are really looking to get to something that's been lost and they can't move past the loss and, and they hold on to the loss. And, uh, and, you know, often, you know, some of the times where I've freaked out the most about changing my life, those times, many times bring me to a place of, know better <laughs> too yeah. yeah you know um in, i love in this a lot of ways i love right? this this is going to turn into a, a therapy session you helping me because clem every time part of what's difficult for me to listen to this song is i think about you know the grass and i don't like this but i mm -hmm. you know i i look at a certain person or thing or place and i'm like that that's going to be over at some point. Um, and I'm, I'm working through that. I'm talking to a lot of people and trying to get over this, but 
that's been difficult for me as I've experienced loss. I just recently lost a friend uh, a week and a half ago uh, who's younger than I am, um, 42. So he's he's uh, four years younger than me. And, um, and I couldn't listen to music for a couple of days mm-hmm. afterwards. And I mean, I think that's understandable, but look, the, the way that you just phrased that, I was like, I've been driving around on an empty tank of gas for the last two weeks and you just filled my tank and gave me like an extra, an extra battery so that when that tank runs out, I I can keep going. I mean, that's, you're so right. And that's just such a, a healthier, more beautiful way of, of looking at it. And when you put it that way, it makes so much more sense to me than I think if I had just read it somewhere. Well, and so thank you. Yeah, yeah, and your your friend is here, right? I mean, the physical is gone, but your friend, I mean, in that deep love, I mean, that's that's here. It's just it's present, and you know, I love the idea that maybe our idea of time is completely like maybe time is not linear. Maybe everything happens in one moment. This is kind of a Hindu idea of way. seeing things you know eastern way of seeing things if everything is in one moment then we're all here together always and it's through love that we can make that connection you know that love of your friend he's always present with you that is the eternal that we we find uh, when we really look yeah Yeah, i think the biggest thing i struggle with is is the fear of the unknown Mm -hmm. you know that i think we all have but we might have talked about this in the last podcast you and I did together, but it, I think as a as a kid, I sort of was given this. You know, I grew up Catholic, and I mm-hmm. I um, and that was just there wasn't a choice. That was just mm-hmm. what I was. You know, I I, I did would, too. I turned five years old, and my I was wearing a uh, a plaid tie, and I was going to St. John's School mm-hmm. every day, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. and so I had this vision of you know the the afterlife and that there really was no, you know, no, no end and that it was actually going to be even sweeter. And as I've gotten older, there've been some, some, some chips in that block for lack of a better way of saying it. And I think when I listen to his song, like all things must pass, it's so beautiful. I I think it really is my favorite song on the, on the record, but I also, it brings back this fear and what it started to do is even in joyful situations, I look at it like, oh, this is going to be over someday, mm-hmm. someday soon. And so I want to do everything I can to to hold on to it. And mm-hmm. I think I'm constantly striving to get through that and look at it more from, you know, a different perspective because time is short, life is short, and the clock is kind of ticking so to speak and more so now music to me has such a a huge effect on me that i i want to hold on to it and i don't ever want to let it let it go and so when i when i was listening to this record today again just kind of getting excited about it i put myself back in the place i don't know if you do this but i always go back to where i was when i first heard it and it's so odd like i can remember certain things that I, that I saw during a particular part of the song, 
I used to ride the subway a lot to work back then. And I had my old Sony Discman with me. <laughs> and I was so excited. This was well before the iPod. And I would throw the disc in and, and listen to it and look out the window. And so listening to this record kind of brings a lot of that back again. And then so I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm forced to reminisce and think back to those times. And what I'd much rather do is listen to the music for what it is and have it be something that gets me excited for the future. And I'm not trying to say I'm not excited about the future, but in the last podcast I did about Rush's Roll the Bones, I'm paraphrasing what I what I said, but it was something to the effect of like I, I remember as a kid, I didn't think about death. I didn't think about school shootings. I'm getting real deep here, but I didn't think about politics. I just thought about my friends and I thought about my family and I thought about how excited I was for dinner and how excited I was after school to go back up to my room and I wanted to learn how to play black dog on my bass. And I wanted to learn how to play stairway to heaven on my guitar. And, and that's all I thought about. And, and now today as an adult, um, you know, I think about a lot of the what ifs and a lot of the tragedies and music sometimes as wonderful as it is, can bring back some of those bad memories as well, even though it was a good memory when I first listened to it. I don't know if any of this makes sense, but um yeah. i just yeah I, I love listening to your point of view with everything because i think it's so genuine and this isn't something that you're just saying for show because i feel like a lot of times people they they do that just to kind of make you feel better you know um i'm guilty of that sometimes my wife will have a tough day and you know i'll just start try to fix spewing this positivity and then when I'm done, I'm like, I only really believed in like half of that, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> you know, I want my, my goal is to cheer her up. I don't want to see her sad. And she does the same for me. Right. But when it's coming from you, I just feel like it's so, so genuine. <laughs> like you really feel it. Um, I've, so. Well, I mean, they're all things, you know, that I felt deeply, you know, the, the yeah. great agony of change. Right. You, you were know, there. The great, I mean, you, you the did. The great agony of, of things. You know, I, I have moments in my life where I stood and, and said, just remember, like, remember what this feels like here. Remember what this is right here. You yeah. know? And over time, I realized, first of all, that that thing you were talking about of of really just being in the moment and, and being so distracted by the fact that things are going to change. You know, when, when you think about, you know, the idea of mindfulness, right. And be here right. now right, and not getting caught in the future, caught in the past and just being able to fully be in your moments. I think that it really is uh, when you're thinking about, you know, solidify this so that you can rem remember it forever. What you're doing is you're robbing yourself of the experience because you really are living in the future. You're living in the in the time where it doesn't exist, and you're trying to go back to that moment. And so, when you accept that all things will pass, and yet there is something here that is eternal. You know, I mean, a Hindu, a Buddhist, they believe that we're we're back a lot, right? Right. Um, and even if Definitely. we don't come back here, we there is that spark that exists, right? And I think to see everything as that spark, that that 
that tighter place that you imagine it's here we're here right we're here already it is it is present and so in you know our practice what we do is is watch how we we pull ourselves into the past or future to rob ourselves of really feeling feeling the pain feeling the grief feel, really feeling but also being able to when we allow those things to rise most of the time we're not given anything we can't handle right emotionally so we we allow a the grief to rise. And if we don't tell ourselves a story like this is going to stay forever or this person is gone and all of this stuff, we're not telling the story and we're just feeling that fully. What's underneath it is that wide awareness of continuation of, of, of that. And when you think about that five-year-old boy or that, that young person listening to those albums, He's alive. He's alive in you. You are it. Yeah. You know, we yeah. you look at the world through that lens and everything that you bring to this moment is recognizing that, you know, all all things are here at once. Yeah. God, I never even looked at it that way. But now I think I'm I think when I hear the song now that I I will because you're you're right when I I broke my leg last year last summer and I was in bed for six weeks and then I I started to have feelings that I might never you know run again or I might I mean I had crazy feelings like I might never walk again I think that had a lot to do with the pain meds I was taking but you're right it's all things all things must pass and look at it from that perspective this is why I love doing this because well, I could go on and on and on for so many reasons. So well, I mean, you always you you always take it there. You know, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's that's the great thing. That's why I really love this and why I was so excited to do this. Yeah, this album because you know I see I see George Harrison as you know I know there was a lot going on you know in the sixties and seventies and fifties sixties and seventies to kind of bring Western right. spirituality to the West and. Um, you know, and, and he, it, he just seemed to speak from that pure place, you know, which is that yeah. if you really move in a meditation all the way down, releasing all your reactions, what's left is that vibration of love. Yeah. And I've been thinking lately, what if I just saw everything as love, love in all its forms, right? Love as love forgetting its love right? right in the uh you know in the in the worst parts of what i'm looking at but what if i recognized that vibration of love at the base of everything then what does the world look like then how do i see the jerky guy who's being a jerk right, right. then right. you know i see him as having forgotten that and what a painful thing it must be to yeah. forget that we are here vibrating in this this love you know when you look at all of the you know thousands and thousands and thousands of after-death experiences of people who died and were brought back right like so many every single person says i was just surrounded in more love than i ever knew yeah right? that's a great point Clem. Yeah. yeah and that that is here right uh so i i don't know i think that the sorrow and the suffering that we go through they're great teachers for us for what we we hold on to you know we hold on to our suffering a lot of the times because it's the only thing we've known and we think that that's it's comforting in a way 
right. you know, I, I wrote something in my book about, you know, when I, when I am in grief, I see, like, given I sit and I just allow grief to rise and I feel it and it's like a physical reaction that comes up in me, then when it starts to dissipate, I see myself clutching for it, like wanting to tell myself the story because if the grief only lasts for two minutes, then am I really that sad? Am I the person who is really sad? Right. You know, we have... I, we identify with the set. I am now suffering. I am now grief. And, and these practices, you know, that Harrison was doing and that you do the meditation, that's that's part of the le- some of the lessons we Thanks again for listening to the albumreview.net podcast and today's episode, part one of a two-part review of George Harrison's 1970 debut solo album, All Things Must Pass. And thanks again to my guest, Clementine Moss, for such a great conversation. Man, every, every time I talk to Clem, I just feel a little bit better about humanity and the future. She's just a wonderful, spiritual person and not to mention a freaking fantastic rock drummer. As I previously mentioned, Clem is also a spiritual counselor and an author. She recently published a book from Bonham to Buddha and back. You can check this out and pick up a copy of your own at clementinemoss.com or clemthegreat.com. Also, if you're interested in any of the books or albums that I've discussed in this episode or previous episodes, Go to albumreview.net and pick up a copy of your own. Listen to all my podcast album reviews at albumreview.net by clicking on the podcast tab. They can also be heard where podcasts are available. Please follow the show on your preferred platform so you can get regular updates on new episodes. Also, if you guys would be so kind as to pop a quick review or rate the podcast, that helps move the needle and get the word out there. I do want to hear from you. You can email me your feedback, album review requests, and any questions you have to gpotters at albumreview.net. That's G-P-O-T-T-E-R-S at albumreview.net. If you'd like to get regular updates on reviews, interviews, products, and music news, go to the homepage and join the mailing list. 
Visit our YouTube page and stay tuned for updates on Instagram, Facebook, and that thing they call TikTok, which may or may not be here in a couple of years. You can find me on those platforms at albumreviewnet. Okay, stay tuned for episode two coming up eventually of this two-part review coming soon. Right, can it? Don't worry, Veruca. Be patient. God. All right. Later. trip down by the highway take a 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 trip down